Happy Saturday. It is April 10th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. Hi, Ashley. I'm Michael Haney, a deputy editor here at Airmail. Welcome, friends. We have so much to get to today. I don't even know. Actually, I do know where to start, Michael. Hunter Biden. You're on the hunt for Hunter? I know he's been a fixation of yours for a long time, but what do you got now? Well, you, you know, you guys are always making me feel guilty for having a thing for bad boys. And I read Hunter's memoir in a frenzy. Michael, very few things ever come between me and my 10 o'clock bedtime. Hunter Biden is one of those things. I started reading his book yesterday. Couldn't put so it... So Hunter kept you up late is what you're saying? Oh, yes, he did. Okay. Just want to be sure. <laughs> As many of you know, Beautiful Things, his memoir, was published on Tuesday of this week, and it's already been one of the buzziest books out there. And I blame Maureen and Sean for this because Maureen Dowd wrote about this in her column for the New York Times on Saturday. She raved about the book. Then I was texting with Sean McCreech, who also works at the Times and works with Maureen, and Sean was telling me what beautiful prose it is, and I started getting very excited. So of course I had to read it right away. The book doesn't disappoint Mike. And the stories within it are so much more jaw-dropping than anything I've actually read about Hunter Biden that it was really revelation after revelation. Uh, I will begin by saying Hunter did not keep me up late. I did spend time with him. I got the book, which was acquired and edited by my old spy colleague and former Vanity Fair editor, Amy Bell, who, who brought it in. And I'm not surprised that Amy was with this book because you're exactly right. I think there's what you see on 60 Minutes and the news and the clips and a guy talking about, you know, the, the political angle of who he is, right? And and the intersection of, of all the stuff, the laptop and everything. But that, I'm not setting that aside. I'm simply saying, and there's what you get in this book is very powerful and raw and I think honest uh, account of what it is like to suffer an addiction and to and how that can destroy your life and take your family to the brink. And, you know, I think as Joe Biden said during the campaign, he's like, my son has a problem. He's trying to get help for it. And I think it's it's a problem that so many families and so many individuals wrestle with. And I think you're exactly right that how he describes his descent and his struggle with it, it's harrowing and it's in many ways, I think, hopeful, right? Okay, Michael. So here's my take on this story. It's like, okay, so whatever Trump and Matt Gates and the Republican machine threw at Hunter Biden surely is not worse than what Hunter Biden writes about himself in this book. You and I talk a lot about Joe Biden, the humanist, right? And we think one of his great talents is his ability to empathize with others who are struggling. And I think we owe a lot to Hunter Biden, honestly, because this has not been an easy road for Hunter. And what really struck me by the end of it is what a difficult road it's been for his father. You know, to see a child that you love suffering like this for so many years. And, you know, Hunter, something we forget, you know, something at least I had forgotten is that he had a pretty successful career, a pretty conventional life, if you will, up until, let's say, around 2014 when his brother Bo died. And that's when it really went off the rails. But he went to Georgetown. He graduated from Yale with a law degree. He had his own consulting firm. He had a quite successful career. He raised three daughters, two of whom are now in college and one of whom is in law school. You know, so he was kind of just rolling through it, dealing with his addiction problems as they surfaced for the most part. But when he started getting into crack cocaine, that was when, you know, he was a guy in his late 40s, honestly. And it just is a good reminder of how vulnerable we all are to these demons, right, in our society. And Maureen Dowd called it our national shame, right, is this epidemic of addiction that we're seeing in the U.S. And I think 
this book does a really brilliant job of showing how uh, addiction doesn't discriminate. Addiction issues are present in every family. And it's an incredibly powerful story of resilience and love and total radical acceptance by Joe Biden of his son, who honestly, like I was reading this from the perspective of Biden, Michael, and thinking this guy could have screwed it all up. You know, if Biden hadn't been so steadfast and had not decided to accept his son for everything, it could have ended much differently. This book gave me just a huge amount of respect for Hunter Biden and a massive amount of respect for Joe Biden for dealing with it with such grace and empathy. The why here when he locates it, it seems to me is, and and this is, I think, for all parents to think about and anyone to think about with brother or sister, is he talks about being just a kid, an infant, a little toddler. And that's when his and Bo's mother dies in the car crash. And this really like PTSD that settles in two, three, four-year-old boy. And again, a reminder that children, uh, the scars that are set early often have lifelong impact on them. Yeah. And reading Hunter's story, you think, how much is one person supposed to take? Uh, It's just an incredibly tragic story on a lot of fronts, but one that I find to be so hopeful because, again, he is he's shedding light on this truth of his experience. And I think in many ways, he's giving a lot of Americans hope for their own future. And also, you know, this sense of ownership over his story and saying, I'm not going to let Matt Gates or Donald Trump tell everyone who Hunter Biden is. I'm going to come out and, and talk about this on my own. And he does remove some of the stigma from all of his struggles in doing so. And I just, I give the guy a ton of credit. I hope we can have him on the show at some point and talk about it. It's just the whole thing really moved, as I'm sure you can tell. Absolutely. Moving on from Hunter Biden. What do we got in the issue this week? What are we going to talk about today, Ashley? Weight loss? Yeah, this is a story you worked on, right? The the battle of the dieting apps, which is like all things these days, seems to break down along baby boomers, hashtag okay boomers versus millennials, right? Like it's, it's already, it, it, there's now everything generational. There's a shift. Right. There's a shift. So this idea came about because Alessandra, Emily Davis, our CMO, and I get together on occasion for lunch outside. And we were talking about how much weight we've gained during the pandemic and various means of losing it. And Emily suggested that we all try Noom. And of course we did. And Alessandra started comparing it to Weight Watchers, which is, of course, the more established weight loss program on the market. And so we thought there might be a story here. So Alessandra had the brilliant idea to assign it to Judith Newman, who is a funny, witty, acerbic writer who, well, let's just have her on here to talk about it. Well, Judith, you tackle one of the most pressing problems of the pandemic, at least for a certain demographic, weight gain. What has your experience with this been like? Well, I mean, my personal experience is probably much like everyone else's, that this has not been good for our waistlines at all. And I I think the studies have shown that we've, over the course of a year, people gained an average of two pounds a month, I think it was. And that's why these weight loss apps have become like incredibly popular during this time. As Alessandra may have told you, I am also doing Noom. And she was the first person to put it in my head that Noom was basically a rebranded Weight Watchers in some capacity, right? So have you had any experience at all with Weight Watchers? No, I haven't. And I went and talked to people who've done both. I started with Zoom for a reason because, and and I'm sure that that you'll understand this, but as far as as Weight Watchers goes, it's not like they're terribly different. Uh, The people who like Weight Watchers, one of the things they love is that there's this point system where they don't talk about calories at all. And you are ascribed zero points for healthy foods. 
And, you know, that is really a good thing for many people. On the other hand, there are people who can easily eat a whole watermelon and it doesn't always work for them. But I like, I don't know about you, Ashley, I'd, I'd love to know what you think. But I mean, I like Noom because of the whole accountability. You have to sit there and, and face your fears. And if your fears come in the form of a coconut macaroon for 83 calories, well, that's just what you have to do. And I, the, the whole thing about getting on scale. I won't say that I've faced all my fears. I still, I've been doing this for more than a month and I have not once gotten on a scale. Are you good about that yourself? I weigh myself almost every day. I like to start the morning off with a bit of torture and pain and discomfort. Why not? I have that opposite kind of body dysmorphia where I think that I look really good. (laughs) No, it was very illuminating, right? Because I started recording every single thing I ate and noticed that it was labeled red, green, or yellow. And it turns out that it was not the most balanced diet imaginable. And it was probably much higher in calories than I thought. Uh, Importantly, I was probably drinking a fair amount of calories, it turns out. You know, a glass of wine, 150. I can't tell you how many nights in a row my dinner has now been a martini, pretzels, and cheese spread. And like you, Ashley, I have that different dysmorphia too. It's like if I lose three pounds, I'm just the hottest thing in the world. I'm not really that hard on myself. And I think it helps to have a childhood where your father was a chubby chaser. So, you know, my father really loved big women. And so I just have a, an enormous, this sense of, of, oh, well, a little Spanx and I'm good to go. But you also get to a certain point when you're not a millennial anymore, when you're in the baby boomer generation where uh, Spanx or no Spanx, Banks, your your knees are telling you what your weight is and your your general sense of health. So that there's there's another sense. Noom doesn't deal with Noom is much more you know sort of weirdly marketing itself to basically a generation that doesn't hasn't faced the postmenopausal weight issues. But nevertheless, it's it's very smart. I think it's very smart about the way it approaches weight loss and by constantly telling you that it's not a diet, even though of course it's about this, it can hook you in and make you feel less pathetic, which I think is very important in this whole process. Like you're not just this another sad middle-aged or 30-something loser who can't control herself. Rather, you're somebody who's kind of taking the bull by the horns and understanding this problem. The more you know, the better it is. Well, two things. One, just since we're talking about the youngs these days, I love that your father was a chubby chaser, but I would just probably like to correct and say, maybe he was a fan of the Rubenesque sort of a profile, right? I think either way. I'm just joking. And by the way, so am I. I my favorite standard is a double standard. And, uh, <laughs> and essentially when it comes to, when it comes to men, I, you know, I will always go for Zach Galifianakis over, uh, uh, I don't know, Ryan Philippe or, or okay, that's a really silly, but you know, I'll, I'll I like the big guys. My favorite point is I feel like you're basically on the Truman Capote diet, which is, what do you say? A martini, a cheese spread, and what else? Martini, cheese spread, pretzels every single night. But Ashley, I want to know, how is it working for you? And is this your experience? I hate the word foodie, but it's a bit of an occupational hazard for me because I do cover food and restaurants and dining and that whole scene for airmail. So I do like to go out and have an enjoyable meal. I can't help it. Um, But then I go to dinner with Michael and we'll go to Via Corota and he will order a cacio pepe and a side of broccoli rob and then he will suggest that we split both of those dishes. That is not true. It's 100% true. 100% 100% true. As Don McNeil Jr. would write uh, about the pandemic, 
He called it a hammer and a dance. Okay. That's my relationship with food. I will dance and dance and dance. And then ultimately I have to put down the hammer just for a bit of time, usually via some fad diet because I have to fit into my clothes and I also cover fashion. So as you can imagine, my clothes are important to me and I don't want to have to buy new ones. So one of the things I like about Noom, especially right now when I'm not dining out a lot is that, you know, there's very little fun in my life right now. So I can just sit at home and eat 1300 calories a day. And Well, there's a little bit of a mystery because, you know, depending on what you put in there, I've put in steak salad and they register it as 785 calories. I put in steak salad and, and some other steak salad is about uh, 400 calories. So guess which steak salad I put in when I when I do this? I mean, look, there there is truly no more boring conversation than your weight. There There's no good conversation ever started with, you know, guess how many steps I did today. I mean, it's just, it's not there, but at the same time, we, we need the, the, the pandemic has, has really done us in as far as uh, this stuff goes. And, you know, for the sake of health, that's, that's why everyone is looking at these apps and everyone is looking at them and, and trying to figure out a way to, to make them chic. Um, nobody, by the way, would talk to me about what their real demographics are. Neither Noom or Weight Watchers, when I asked them, they, they avoided the question entirely. I mean, Ashley, do you think that it's really a, a, a millennial versus baby boomer thing? I think so. I think a lot of people who are born after Jimmy Carter left office probably won't do Weight Watchers. I mean, it just seems like something your mother used to do. I got kind of emotional listening to James Corden, uh, a man who I, I, I think is absolutely adorable at his former weight, but James Corden did this Weight Watchers. He, he's involved with them now, and he's been talking to people about this. And he's he literally at the beginning of the year he started crying in this video he's doing about how much what, what a struggle this has been to him and so forth. And I think he's lost sixteen or seventeen pounds, and he he looks great. But it's an interesting, but it's not a coincidence, I guess, that Oprah is involved with WW and is their main person in a way because they they are going to the professional and to the, the dramatic in looking at people's weight loss stories. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I have no idea what I'm talking about. Scrap that. <laughs> I just wanted to st- a shout out to James Corden, I think. Well, Judith, one thing I know for sure is that I'd love to take you to lunch. Maybe we'll invite Michael. That would be absolutely wonderful. We all have to salute to the 90s and, and drink a little bit, okay? Can we agree on that? I mean, I'm down. I'm good for at least one, maybe one and a half martinis. Perfect. I'm there. I won't outdo you. And then we'll quickly get on Noom and uh, record exactly what it is we've just done. And maybe I'll cheat. Probably not you, but maybe me. <laughs> Judith, thank you so much, both for this great piece and for coming on the show. Thank you. I really appreciate it, both of you. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Now, now that we're in ship shape from Noom and looking our best ever naked, it's now time for us to revisit the story of Madame Claude, who is coming to Netflix near you. Michael, what do we need to know about this French Madame? Madame Claude was sort of like through the 60s and 70s, she ran probably... Paris's most exclusive ring of high-class call girls, uh, a purveyor of high-class call girls, she was known as. And she was valued for her discretion in not only the kind of women she sort of had uh, working for her, often described in, in this piece by Charles Bremer as uh, very Nordic looking, but for her discretion. And she, it, it was that discretion which attracted men ranging from John F. Kennedy to Mark Chagall, Pablo Picasso, the Shah of Iran, 
Gaddafi, Marlon Brando, Aristotle Onassis, Lauren Mountbatten, on and on, who knew that they could trust her for discussion. The great part of this story is, though, that the French government, which long turned a blind eye, did so only uh, because she, they pressured her in order to stay in business. She would have to basically maintain notes on these powerful people for the French uh, intelligence units. So she was a fascinating person. She came from poverty in rural France and reinvented herself as Madame Claude, you know, with this name that evoked private jets, high fashion, power, intrigue, and sex. But, and she's now, the French have made a Netflix film of it, now coming to Netflix. I'll watch that. All right, Michael, I'm in. Let's watch it. You're in. Oh, yeah. So, yes, this is Madame Claude, who, I mean, what I also find amazing about her story is, and I'm not spoiling anything from the, from the film, but all this power, the center of all this power over women as well as over men. And uh, yet, when she dies, there's like six or eight people at her funeral. She dies basically unknown and and unmourned at 92, but I think like five, six years ago. She still, but has this fascinates the French. So it's a great story. Speaking of other it girls, Michael, should we discuss Ella Amhoff? Yes, we've got to. Your brilliant idea. I love this story. I was talking I was talking about with Brooke last night. I said, got a great piece this week on Ella Amhoff, the new it girl. So take it away, Ashley. Well, you guys are just glad that we're running this piece. So now you can stop listening to me talk about her. But I- I'm fascinated by Ella. So she's the 21-year-old stepdaughter of Vice President Kamala Harris. She's the daughter of her husband, Doug Emhoff, and Doug's first wife, Kirsten Emhoff. She's a student at Parsons. She's a very interesting dresser. She creates her own knitwear. And now she's signed with IMG Models. So, Michael, you might recall she had a big moment at the inauguration because she was wearing, you know, a crystal-shouldered tartan coat by Miu Miu and a a ruffled burgundy taffeta gown by Bathsheba. So it was very much a fashion-forward ensemble at the inauguration where otherwise relatively conservative fashion reigned. So a lot of eyebrows were raised, and sure enough, IMG Models signed her on. Uh, Ivan Bart, who's the head of the division, also represents Gigi Hadid and Hailey Bieber and, you know, of big, big, big models. And the agency occasionally signs young women who kind of emerge out of nowhere, but they feel like they're going to be a thing in culture and that, you know, there might be a way to represent them and make some money off of them. And so that's where we are with Ella Emhoff. Now, within just a few weeks of appearing at the inauguration, she was already appearing in Proenza Schoolers Fall 2021 runway experience. Uh, she was also on the cover of a magazine called Dust. She released a five-piece capsule collection of knitwear and it sold out immediately. And now she just might be the coolest girl in town. Her boyfriend is a guy named Sam Hine, who's a also creatively dressed editor at GQ Magazine. And their spottings around town are showing up everywhere and uh, the media is paying attention and so are we. Okay, I have two questions for you. Please. And, all right, number one, as we called her in the issue this week, she's certainly Brooklyn's new it girl, right? I mean, her style is, uh, which I want to get to inside. But is she America's new it girl? Unclear. People always say that New York and the rest of the U.S. have very little in common. I don't know if that's true or not. We won't get into that today. But I think for now, her look has, she's been a thing in New York and people have been talking about her, but she was parodied on SNL last weekend and it was kind of hysterical. Chloe Fineman did it. And I think because of that, now the rest of the country is starting to take notice. Look, she's talented. As you said, she's in Parsons studying fashion design. If you look her up on Instagram, you'll see her designs, which a lot of crocheting, which looks a lot like crocheted vests. It's basically like taking your grandma's tea cozies and knitting them together to make a vest. As you describe her style in Airmail this week, it's 
Napoleon Dynamite chic, maybe? Is that how we would describe it? Perhaps. Look. I'm not making fun of it. I'm simply saying it's 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 a very different look, right? And it's it's very where fashion is right now. And I think what's that's what's what's great about it. But it's certainly she's very fashion forward and, and I think she's got a great creative eye. I agree. I dig her for this reason as well, Michael. Like in among this generation of young women, we're seeing kind of a polarizing thing have fashion. So on one hand, you have the Kardashian, right? Very retouched. As we saw this week, a retouching scandal. Oh, a retouching. So we won't even get into Khloe Kardashian's retouching. But that sort of, can we call it fake? We can call it fake. That kind of like overly retouched, overly conceived. Highly processed. It's highly processed food versus organic food. Exactly. Ex- Michael, I love what you're saying. It's sort of like the Park Slope food co-op on one hand and McDonald's on the other. Can we say that? Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, your little Bushwick world versus, I don't know, your sort of, yeah, fast food, uh, two billion served kind of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. It, she feels very contrarian. It's uh, it's totally different. And she's not afraid to be out there about it. And I kind of love it. I have to say it's fun. Um, and, you know, especially in the super polished world of Washington, like bring on the crochet knits. No, listen, I think, and after all the sort of like stylists taking control of these people and, you know, four years of Melania and Ivanka style, which is, you know, like automaton robot fembots coming at me. It's great to see here's a 21-year-old student figuring out the next wave of fashion and her sustainability bent. And I think she's a great example of where creativity comes from and uh, watching it. But okay, my last question for you. We talk about it girls in this piece, right? And as you point out, the what makes a New York it girl is it's a mercurial thing, right? You you talk about how Chloe Sevigny sort of came on the scene twenty some years ago, right? And you can't set out to be an it girl, right? It just happens for you, right? Exactly. It's all about a certain je ne sais quoi, and it's never predictable. Like there's so many characters who have come and gone, and you thought that they had it, but it turns out that they didn't. And there's no real rhyme or reason to it. I mean, everyone from Olivia Palermo to Ivanka Trump at one point to Lauren Santa Domingo, even to our favorite grifter Anna Delvey, like these girls have all occupied a prominent place in the New York City consciousness for one reason or another. And Ella is the next girl in this uh, illustrious lineup. And we're obsessed and we're not going to stop talking about her. (laughs) Done. All right. To be continued. Anyone wants to resell me a piece of her knitwear, you know how to get in touch with me. I want it. I'll even pay a premium. Challenge Maybe. is probably going to be accepted. The sweaters are good. I do not want any of the crochet bikinis, for the record. Oh, crap. I had one. Oh, no. Is that what you got me for Christmas? My birthday. Well, beach season is coming up. I was an early Christmas present. <laughs> I'm ready. All right. Well, now that thanks to Noom, maybe I'll be ready. Doesn't, doesn't it give weird tanning lines, a crocheted bikini? I don't even don't want to think any... about this, Michael. This is too your much skin, for me. Your skin looks like, I don't know, Swiss cheese or something then. I don't know. In reverse, it's like a sort of man ray kind of photo thing. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Perhaps. Okay. All right. So, Michael, we have two great lives to consider this week. The first, of course, being Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, who married Queen Elizabeth in 1953. And they were married for 68 years. I mean, the numbers here are staggering, but we've read a lot about him. Him yesterday. We're going to be talking a lot more about him in the next weeks to come. But I mean, what an incredible life he had and also in a, in a, truly a character of a different time, but one whose legacy and influence will reign for a long time. Yeah, it's interesting too. I think like many people, like your legacy now is going to be shaped by the crown. I mean, uh, but it's it just because there was so little sort of behind the veil that you could see. But I think so much of that is now going to be shaped by people's people's impressions of him will be shaped by what they saw on that show, right? 
Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I didn't know a lot of like the older backstory there had sort of been lost to history for me. And it was very interesting to bring it all back to the forefront, you know, from his, the story of his youth had sort of been lost on me. Um, But the queen met him when she was 13 years old. And at that time, he was an 18 year old Navy officer cadet known as Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark. And he fell in love with her and he proposed to her at Balmoral. And neither of Elizabeth's parents considered him to be you know, a safe bet, a completely reliable choice because he was related to many of the crowned heads of Europe at that time, but his family had been exiled. He had no money, uh, but he had quite a presence and and quite a story. And he was tall and handsome and an alpha male as Tina Brown wrote about him in the New York times and her obituary of him. But uh, what a character and quite beloved, I think by the Brits uh, in many cases, despite the fact that he was often very loose lipped and, could be gauche at times and, you know, put his foot in his mouth more, you know, on occasion, but still a cool guy. (laughs) Still a cool guy. Speaking of cool, I have one other great life I want to mention. Please do. Ann Bates, who many people may remember, but she's, she died uh, the other day. She was a trailblazing woman in TV comedy 40, 45 years ago, believe it or not, on the original season, first five seasons of Saturday Night Live where she was, uh, you know, a trailblazing, as I said, woman in comedy. And she was on that sort of debut cast with Chevy Chase and Gilda Radner, John Belushi. But she wrote some of the most unforgettable characters. She created, first and foremost, the nerds uh, family with Le- uh, Gilda Radner as Lisa Lupner and Bill Murray as Todd Dilamuka, if you remember those. And uh, she was such a great writer because she gave people such concrete things to work with for their characters. The fact that Lisa Lupner loved egg salad sandwiches uh, and lots of noogies I always loved. Uh, but, uh, you know, after Saturday Night Live, she left and uh, she went on to create a sort of forgotten show in some ways, but an extremely influential show, which was Square Pegs, uh, which ran for, I think, two seasons uh, on CBS. Uh, but it starred a teenage Sarah Jessica Parker, if you ever, if you can find it on YouTube, I highly suggest you check it out. She became a mentor to Sarah Jessica Parker through the years. In fact, Sarah Jessica released a statement the other day saying how, uh, how much she learned from her and, and how influential she was in her life. So it was one of those writers who I love and whose work has sort of uh, become part of our culture for these 40, almost 50 years now. So Ann Bates. Well, thank you, Michael. All right, Michael, now that you have successfully had your vaccine, are you going to La Sirena's? Is that going to be your first destination? Uh, it, you mean La Sirena's Hotel on the Amalfi Coast in Positano? Indeed. The very one. The very one I'm writing about this week. I've thought about it. As I wrote right in the piece, it's having their 70th anniversary this week. It's been in the Sursali family for 70 years. It's a place that's pretty special to myself and Brooke. We got engaged there and uh, I write about the bar we sort of celebrated in afterwards which is one of my favorite places on the earth. But if you see me there, all I tell you is I will buy you a drink, but keep your hands off my potato chips because they're the best potato chips and the best Marcona almonds in the world. But I highly recommend anyone who's thinking about, we all need something to look forward to and put a little dot on the calendar between now and the end of the year. So if you're looking for to go to Italy and once that reopens and maybe the Amalfi Coast, I highly recommend the Sierra News. Michael, I am not optimistic that we're going to be going to Italy this summer. I'm sorry to say. God, why are you such a downer. It's not me being a downer, Michael, for once. It's simply a reality check. They do not have a lot of vaccine there, and they're still in a lockdown state. 
All right, Michael. Well, before we head off into this exciting weekend, please, do you have anything at all to recommend? I do. And and, and it's a bit of a, it's a tough one because maybe it's a little bit like the Hunter Biden uh, uh, that we started with. Have you seen The Father with Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman? I'm just going to tell you from the, everyone from the get-go, it is a tough watch, but it is worth it. And it's, if you don't know the story, I mean, Hopkins just got nominated for this. Now the oldest actor ever to be nominated for an, an Oscar. But it's based on the acclaimed award-winning play, The Father. And it starts out as this very sort of very simple, deceptive drama of an 80-year-old father losing patience with his daughter, played by Olivia Coleman. And, uh, but it's about his difficult, often quite brutal, slow decline into dementia and Alzheimer's. And it is crushing to watch at times, but Hopkins is breathtaking as well. And it's an overused word, I think, sometimes. But um, it's a beautiful, powerful film, which is almost like mystery, suspense, psychodrama, all in one. And uh, I really, I know it's a, it's a tough film to watch. There's tough films this year with Sound of Metal, but this is brilliant if you can sit through it, and I highly recommend you do. Marvelous. All right, Michael. Well, on a slightly less depressing note. See, now I always get to put in the hole like this. What do you, you got like... Like what? Some junior jams thing? What do you junior got? jams. Don't make fun of my headphones. Okay. Listen, <laughs> so this week I did something that I do frequently as I prepare for the summer. I reread one of my favorite books, which is Bonjour Tristesse by Francois Sagan. Have you read it? I have Oh not. my God. Well, you've probably seen the film, Nespa, which was uh, released mm-hmm. in 1958 and it was directed by Otto Preminger and it was uh, one for the ages, but the book is really worth reading. So it was published in 1954 when Francois Sagan was only 18 and it was a complete overnight sensation. Um, And it concerns a 17-year-old girl named Cecile who spends her summer in the French Riviera with her father, Raymond, and his mistress. And this beautiful holiday is shattered by the arrival of a woman named Anne, who her father, Raymond, had invited. Anne sees herself as kind of Cecile's authority figure. And you have a a trio of young ladies that are competing for his attention. So it's a a fascinating book and also a really good film. Yes, I love the film. David Niven with Gene Seberg, right? And is it Deborah Carr? in it, right? I think. It was Deborah Carr. Yeah. Uh, no, the film is unbelievable. And I think, can't remember if it was Gene Seberg's where she wasn't, but but in her screen run. We, I mean, and this was Gene Seberg before she did Breathless, right? With Godard. So yeah, terrific film. Yeah, this is two years before Breathless, actually. She was only 20 years old when the movie came out. And it, this is really the moment where everyone took notice of her. And she's so unbelievable, played against David Niven as well. David Niven plays her father. So the, whether you watch the film or read the book, highly recommend both of them, but it's probably good to do uh, to do a little one-two punch, given that we have uh, we may not be in the south of France this year, sadly, but we can at least live vicariously through this film in the book. Speaking of David Niven and good books, have you ever read, read his autobiography, The Moon's a Balloon? No. Highly recommend that. I might actually read it again. I think he published it in the early 70s, talks about his early life, but it's really, really great. Really charming and um, entertaining. and But yeah, can't recommend that one enough. I mean, he's had an incredible career, films of all genres. What's your favorite David Niven film? The sentimentalist to me would say The Bishop's Wife, but I would, uh, the 12-year-old boy would say The Guns of Navarone, which you've, I hope you've all seen, The Great World War II Caper, which he co-stars with Gregory Peck. One is when he discovers a traitor in the ranks, and the second is when they're sort of stealing these Nazi uniforms uh, for the big raid, and they take them off these German soldiers, and Niven, quote, uh, quips uh, that the Nazis have shocking taste in undies. So... And you, Ashley, how about you? 
I don't, you know, I'm going to go with Bonjour Tristesse, actually, Michael. He's totally magnetic. He's got that appeal of the, he has, he achieves that elusive allure of the older debonair city guy. And, uh, I don't know. That's just more my kind of movie than a lot of his other, his other stuff. I'm looking to see. Yeah, I love him. I mean, there's there's so many moments he goes through in Bridge on the Requi and and just uh, you know, but uh, no, Trieste is beautiful. It's a good it's a good welcome to summer movie to watch this weekend, maybe. Indeed, it is, Michael. As my Birkenstocks will tell you, summer is just around the corner. Wonder what else your Birkenstocks would say if they could talk. <laughs> Right, Michael, on that note, will you please read us out? I will. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thank you for joining us. <laughs>